Well, good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We want to turn to Genesis 9, as that's the text we're going to consider this morning. And we're really looking at the end of Genesis 9, starting in verse 18. And as we've gone through the book of Genesis, I've been emphasizing that Genesis is arranged around these genealogies. And we're in the genealogy of Noah's story. And that genealogy is coming to an end. That genealogy of Noah's story is coming to an end. And I also pointed out that as we go through each genealogy, so we get a genealogy or a list of this man begat this man, and this man begat this man, and this man begot this man, et cetera, et cetera. As we go through those stories, we get to the end of a genealogy, and then we get the story of the central figure of that genealogy. So the first genealogy is the one in Genesis 2-4, and then we get the story of Adam and Eve and of their sons, who are Cain and Abel and Seth. And then in Genesis 5-1, through the end of Genesis 5, we get the story of the descendants of Adam through Seth, really focusing us on Noah. And then we read Noah's story. And then, or at least the fall of man. And then in Genesis 6-8, we turn to Noah's genealogy. And then we really get Noah's story in full with the flood. And we're coming to the very end of that. And the end of some of these genealogies often offers previews For the next genealogy and story, it's kind of like going to the movies and you get a preview just before the movie starts of some upcoming story or film. And at the end of Genesis 9, we're getting a preview of what's to come, really not only in the rest of Genesis, but in the rest of human history, interestingly enough. So we're going to look at that passage today, Genesis 9 and verse 18. The sons of Noah... Who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, The father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And thus ends the story of Noah. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask that as we consider this story of Noah and his fall into sin, the responses of his respective sons in the face of their father's sin and the blessing and curse that come upon them, we pray that your spirit would illumine our minds, that 
you would turn on the lights, that we would understand your word and rejoice in your word, that we would hear what it is that you are saying to your church in every age, not just what you are saying to Israel as they come out of Egypt and head for the promised land, as Moses writes this to them, but what your spirit has superintended to be heard by the church in all generations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to look at this story, as I said, and we're really going to take it in three parts. It's, it's very simple three parts, but we have to look at some, at least in the second part, a fairly controversial point. But here are the three parts. First, we're going to look at Noah's fall. Noah's fall, which is in Genesis 9, 18 through 21. So that's really the first point we'll walk through. The fall of Noah into sin, Genesis 9, 18 through 21. Second, we're going to consider the responses of Noah's sons to his fall. The responses of his sons. He has three sons. We're going to see the responses of his sons to his fall. That's in Genesis 9, 22 through 23. And then finally, or thirdly, we're going to look at or hear the curses and blessings that come upon Noah's sons. The curses and blessings that come upon them in Genesis 9, 24 through 28. And what I want you to be a bit startled by here, which I imagine you will be, is the way in which these curses and blessings tell us about the whole rest of redemptive history. The whole of the salvation story. So let's look first at Noah's fall. As we consider Noah's fall, I want to remind you of what I told you at the beginning about how Genesis is organized. It's organized around genealogies. And here we come to the end of Noah's story. But I want you to see that organization, as I pointed out, just really quickly so you don't lose sight of what's happening. Look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. We're now going to hear the Toledot, the generation story of the heavens and the earth, or the earth and the heavens, through Adam and Eve and their three sons. We hear about Adam and Eve being in the garden. Adam is a farmer, a worker of the ground in the garden. And they're warned not to eat particular fruit. And Satan comes in and tempts them to eat that fruit. And we learn that at that point, they are naked and ashamed. They're exposed as the guilty sinners they are for partaking of the fruit. And then we see the curse of God come upon them. And in that curse, we hear the blessing that the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. And then you see Adam and Eve believe God, be covered with animal skins, be ejected from the garden, and they'll go out and their two sons, Cain and Abel, will show forth godliness and wickedness, if you will, Abel being godly and Cain being wicked. And Cain will murder Abel. And then you will begin to see through the line of Cain the beginning of the city of man, this wicked city that exalts itself above God or over against God. And then Adam and Eve will give birth to another son named Seth. Now that will come at the end of Genesis 4. The end of Genesis 4, they're going to give birth to Seth, who is godly, and that's a preview of what's to come in Genesis 5 and 6. So then you get to Genesis 5.1. Look there. 
This is the book of the generations of Adam. Here we get another Toledot, and you have the story of these men. And notice what it often says at the end of their story. So, for example, look down at verse 5 of Genesis 5. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So, that's how, if you will, a genealogy sort of closes up. But here you have the generations of Adam going through all his sons, all the way down to Noah. If you look down at verse 32 of Genesis 5, after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Notice this. Adam had three sons. Two were godly. One was wicked. Now Noah has three sons. And you're going to see the same pattern. Two are godly. One is wicked. But you get to the end of this genealogy, and in chapter 6, you hear about the wickedness of man on the earth. That it's spread everywhere, but God is showing grace to Noah. He set Noah apart to be gracious to him. And then in Genesis 6, 9, you start a new genealogy. Look there. These are the generations of Noah. And so now you learn the generations of Noah. Noah had three sons, verse 10 of chapter 6. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And notice, these are generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Then you hear the story of God speaking to Noah about the coming flood. Man has become wicked. I'm going to destroy him with the flood, build an ark, and you and your family go into the ark. I'm covenanting with you and your household. First use of the word covenant in the Bible, Genesis 6.18. I'm covenant with you and your household. First use of the word household in the Bible, Genesis 7.1. And you all are going to get in the ark because you believe. And you're going to all be saved through the flood because of your faith in me. I have set you apart in this way by grace, Genesis 6, 7, and you believe and you walk in blamelessness and righteousness, so your whole family is going to be saved in this flood. And you hear speech after speech from the Lord. They get on the ark, they go through the flood. As God judges the whole earth, they come up out of the flood as God separates the waters. He remembers his covenant with Noah. He separates the waters. They land on the mountains of Ararat, which is somewhere near Armenia. They land in those mountains, and then they, as soon as they come off of the ark onto the dry ground, Noah offers an atoning sacrifice. He knows he's a sinner. The Lord looks favorably upon that, and then the Lord makes this declaration that I'm going to preserve man because the intentions of his heart are evil always from his youth. Stunning. Who's man at this point? Noah and his family. Everyone else is dead. No one is family. The thoughts of his heart are always evil, even from his youth. And so God says, therefore, I'm going to preserve him. Instead of judging him with the flood, I'll preserve him. If God doesn't preserve him, there will never be a seed of the woman to come. If God kills evil people in 100% of the instances, then we're all dead. There's no one through whom the seed of the woman can come. And so he says he'll preserve them. He then gives Noah a series of commands. Noah and his sons, here's how you'll live. You'll produce a family. He's really established the institution of the family, which is already in Genesis 1 and 2, but emphasized here again. And the state becomes instituted here with capital punishment, etc. We know that from Romans 13. So these obligations are placed around Noah. And then you get this covenant sign where God says, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky against the clouds so that you can 
know that I do not forget my promises to you. The sign is to remind you that God does not forget his promises to you. And so you have this covenant sign. And after all of this, we then read chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. That's an ominous sort of note. You know, when you're reading a novel and the author kind of foreshadows a problem to come. The Canaanites, you know the Canaanites are wicked and he's being foreshadowed here, if you will. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. That's pointing you forward to the Tower of Babel and the dispersion that's going to happen through these three sons, through the families that come forth from them. All the nations of the earth will be dispersed through them. You're already hearing about that. So that's your context. This whole section is about the history of man as told through Noah's story. And we're learning here that all mankind descend from Noah's three sons. And that Noah's three sons in some way bear responsibility for what we're going to see in the Tower of Babel. You're also being tipped off right off the bat that Ham's line is the seed of the serpent. There's the seed of the woman being opposed by the seed of the serpent. And you're being tipped off. Because Ham is the father of Canaan. If you remember our original audience, the people to whom Moses is writing is Israel after they left in the Exodus in Egypt on the way to the promised land. And they're coming to the land of the Canaanites, these wicked people whom they're supposed to wipe out. And they know that. So when they hear that Ham is the father of Canaan, they know exactly what they're hearing. So Moses is foreshadowing what's to come. In fact, as the end of Genesis 4 gives us a preview of what's to come, so this gives us a preview of what's to come in Genesis 10.1 through 11. With that said, look at Genesis 9.20. We'll get into the meat of this. I want you to notice, don't forget the patterns I told you already in Genesis. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Noah comes off the ark is the typological second Adam. He's not the second Adam, that's Jesus. But he's a type of the second Adam. He comes off of the ark. He's told to be fruitful and multiply. You hear that with Adam. And then, what kind of job does he have? He is a farmer. Just like Adam was. It's not unintentional. So he's farming and he plants a vineyard. Verse 21. He drank of the wine of the vine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. I want you to think about this. God has shown grace to Noah, Genesis 6-7. Noah trusts the Lord, Hebrews eleven seven. Noah is a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Genesis 6-9. Noah is a herald of righteousness, a gospel preacher, 1 Peter 3, 18-20 and 2 Peter 2, 5. Noah obeyed all that the Lord commanded him. Genesis 6.22. Noah's the one with whom God covenants to save him and his household through the flood. Genesis 6.18 and 7.1. Noah has heard God speak on more than one occasion in Genesis 6-9. through Noah saw God act in judging the whole world in a flood. Genesis 7 and 8. Noah saw God's grace in saving him and his family through that flood. 
Also Genesis 7 through 8. Noah heard God's confirmation of his covenant in the giving of the sign, the rainbow, in the immediately preceding passage. Noah received blessed covenant obligations at the beginning of Genesis 9. And now we see Noah as the farmer, like Adam in a garden, and he plants a vineyard and he makes wine. And he drinks it. And he gets drunk. And he exposes himself. Now wine is a gift of the Lord that makes the heart glad. I'm not just making that up because I like wine. That's Psalm 104, 115. In fact, I do not like wine. But Psalm 104, 15 tells me that it's a gift from the Lord. Though when I drink it, I think this is a curse. <laughs> it is disgusting. So, you know, everybody's got their view. Psalm 104.15, though, says it's a gift from the Lord. At the greatest of covenant celebrations, we see God's ambassadors bring forth bread and wine. Think about Melchizedek in Genesis 14.18. He will come to bless Abraham and say, Blessed be the God of Abraham, a similar, in fact, parallel story to this. Blessed be the God of Shem, which you're going to hear. And he comes with bread and wine. Jesus, in Luke 22, brings bread and wine. So here in Noah, if you will, here's Noah in his prosperity, blessed of the Lord, partaking of the fruit of the vine, a gift of the Lord. But then verse 21 tells us that he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Noah gets drunk and lays shamefully exposed In his tent. You see, the same wine that gladdens the heart of men is often the downfall of men. In Genesis 19.32, you're going to see this again, aren't you? Remember, what do the daughters of Lot do with Lot before their wicked act? They get him drunk with wine. And then they commit the wicked act with their father. Wine is a gift that makes the heart glad. But wine is also a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Again, I don't say that because I don't like wine. I say that because that's a quote of Proverbs 20 and verse 1. He who loves wine will be a poor man. Proverbs 21, 17. Kings are told to avoid wine and strong drink. For it will make foolish leaders of them. Proverbs 31.4. Wine is a gift of the Lord, but if you are not, please hear this, if you are not judicious and wise, alert and sober-minded, then it is a curse. If you love it and linger long over it, it is a curse to you. How do you know that? If you can't give it up, you love it too much. Bottom line. When I met my wife, she was clear that she didn't care for alcohol, really wanted around. Okay, it's a beverage. So I'm willing to give it up. I won't tell you what age I was at that time, but I was willing to give it up. Okay, why do I need it in my house? She doesn't want it around. 
So when I sit with couples and one's an alcoholic and the other's not, and the non-alcoholic's like, I'm tired of my alcoholic spouse, and the non-alcoholic says this, when we say to them, well, then give up liquor. Don't have it around your, just get it out of your life. And they're like, it's not fair. I want it around. I want to say to that spouse, you have a problem too then. You have a problem too. You're pointing the finger and you have a problem too. It's a beverage. If you can't get rid of it for the sake of your marriage or your family or because you recognize you're foolish whenever you drink it, then you have a problem with it. You're a fool. And drunkenness often leads to humiliating nakedness and shame, doesn't it? Habakkuk 2, 15 through 16. Drunkenness uncovers your wicked and shameful heart in a number of ways. And here Noah is getting drunk and being shamefully exposed. We see here that Noah is also a sinner. Genesis 8.21 has already made it clear that he is. But we see here Noah's sin in action, if you will. In fact, if you read the story of Noah and the flood from Genesis 6-7, the contrast between Noah and the other peoples, they're all wicked. God's grace was upon Noah. They're all wicked. Noah's blameless. He walks with the Lord. He's righteous. They're all wicked. Noah believes. They're all wicked. Noah is obedient. And you think, my goodness, does Noah sin? Does he need a savior too? And you learn here in the fall of Noah that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Think about this. I just want you to consider the scene. Noah is over 600 years old. Okay? Over 600 years old. His life has been exemplary in so many ways for 600 plus years. We're not talking about a guy who like got on fire for Jesus and was golden for like six months. We're talking about a man who for over 600 years has been walking in godliness and faithfulness. Yet like all of fallen humanity, Noah is a sinner too. Think about how sad the scene is. One hour's drunkenness has exposed that which 600 years of sobriety has concealed. 600 years of sobriety has concealed the wickedness of Noah's heart, and one hour's drunkenness has revealed it. Friends, there's a warning to us here, isn't there? You do not know when Satan will pounce. When Peter says that Satan is like a prowling lion, he's out and about looking for whom he might devour. Understand, that's in the context of persecution. That's the context there in 1 Peter. But here's a fact. Whether persecution or prosperity, Satan is just prowling about looking for the opportunity. He's looking for the opportunity. He's looking for the opportunity. You have to be ever on the lookout. A consistently godly man or woman can scandalize himself or herself and his family and the church in but a moment. You could live a consistently godly life for decades in front of people and let your guard down one hour and scandalize everyone you know. This is why elders and deacons are commanded in 1 Timothy 3 to be sober 
sober-minded men. What are sober-minded men? They're men who know the truth about their own flesh. And so they're on the alert. They don't trust themselves. This is also why they're not to be given to strong drink. You could see why, how this would scandalize people. So Christians, we must always be on the alert. You must always be wary of what is in your own heart. It's easy. It's simple to point at the hearts of others. Say, look at the problem there. When you're doing well by God's grace. And to lose sight of the fact that you better take heed lest you too fall. Galatians 6, 1 and following addresses that. Christians must be always on the alert. You know, this is an awareness that we have as pastors in Christ church. I don't know if people think about this. As a pastor in Christ church, I only have to let my guard down one moment on one day. And in that moment, I will scandalize Christ's name and Christ church. One moment. One moment on one day. So Christians have to always be on alert. You have to be wary of what's in your own heart. One of our greatest errors is being overly trusting of ourselves and correspondingly of being forgetful that Satan is prowling around looking for an opportunity to pounce. Looking for it. As John Calvin rightly said, with what care ought we to cultivate sobriety in in case anything like this or even worse should happen to us? What's happened to Noah? I don't care how godly you are. If you've ever had a problem with consuming too much strong drink, give it up. Walk away from it. Walk away from it. I'm not telling everybody here who drinks wine to stop. Please don't misunderstand me. Did you hear my... First phrase, my protest is, if you've ever had a problem with too much strong drink, then, here's it, give it up. Walk away. One hour of drunkenness can take down years of godliness. I'll say the same thing with your televisions and your computer screens. If you've had a problem with pornography, walk away. Lock it down. Get it out of your life. One hour. If you've had a problem with someone of the opposite sex in the sense that you have a tendency to flirt or commit infidelity against your spouse, in other words, you like that kind of attention from the other person, even if it doesn't go into sexual sin, it just, it just gets you on the road there, you like that kind of flirt, then you ought to be the person who's putting the, if you will, what was once called the Billy Graham rule and now it's called the Mike Pence rule around your life. Put it around your life. I want to mention something else here that's interesting. Moses does not provide a serious condemnation of Noah here. Interestingly enough, Moses isn't applauding Noah's behavior, but Moses does not provide a, like the hammer doesn't drop on Noah here. Moses is making it clear that the condition of man's heart after the flood is basically the same as before the flood. Man has a sinful and depraved heart, yet Noah is still a sincere believer, and on the whole, Noah is still a godly man. On the whole. But Noah is a sinner, and Noah needs a savior. 
This is what I love with Heidelberg Catechism, question 114. Just after the Ten Commandments, they ask this question. Can those converted to God, born-again believers, can those converted to God obey these commandments perfectly? Now, here's the answer. It's not just, no, they can't obey it perfectly, but they can do a pretty good job. That's not what it says. Here's the answer. Answer, no. In this life, even the holiest men have only a small beginning of this obedience. Even the holiest men have only a small beginning of this obedience. How sobering that is for the most sincere saints among us. Even in our finest moments, even in our finest moments, we are still weak sinners in need of a Savior. I want to turn to our second point, the response of Noah's sons to this fall. Look at Genesis 9.22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the wickedness of his father and told his two brothers. Oh, this is interesting. What is Ham's sin? He saw and exposed his father's nakedness. Now, this is where scholars go a variety of directions. What does it mean that he saw his father's nakedness? There are three possible answers. I'll kind of mostly spend time on two because one is not one that I think has much merit at all. One is that he castrates his father. Many scholars have argued that in the past, that he castrates his father. I don't think that has much biblical warrant. The reason they argue for that is because in all the other genealogies, it says this man had this son and this son, and he had many other sons and daughters, and then he died. And in Noah's, at the end of the genealogy, if you look there, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. There's no, in verse 28 and 29, there's no reference of other sons and daughters. And therefore, they claim that it's because he castrated his father, that Ham castrated him. I don't think that's true. Secondly, they say that, that to see his father's nakedness is another way of saying he uncovered his father's nakedness. So seeing his father's nakedness is another way of saying he uncovered his father's nakedness. Now, what does that mean? Well, to uncover someone's nakedness likely speaks of a sexual act. So I'll give you an example of that in just a second. Leviticus 20, verse 17. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to this. Leviticus 20, verse 17. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father, or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees, notice that word ra there, sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. Listen, he has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. So if he did uncover, if seeing is also able to be called uncovering, Leviticus 20, 17, his father's nakedness, then some argues that what Ham has done is not just seen his father's nakedness, but he's in fact uncovered his father's nakedness, and then argue that that probably indicates having homosexual relations with his father. You can read that in several scholarly works. Or there's another possibility. Leviticus 18.7. Listen to this. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. So if seeing his father's nakedness is taken for 
uncovering his father's nakedness, then it could mean that Ham had sexual relations with his mother. You see, these are all terrible possibilities, aren't they? Like, which one of these do you want it to be? Ham castrated him. Ham sodomized him. Ham slept with his mom. All pretty abhorrent. However, while his seeing his father's nakedness could indicate that he uncovered, could indicate that he uncovered his father's nakedness, it does not necessitate that meaning. So now I'm going to tell you what I think the answer is. I don't think it's any of those three. Look at Genesis 9, 22 and 23. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Note the description. He sees his father's nakedness and he goes outside of the tent and tells his two brothers. Now look what his two brothers do upon hearing this. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward And they did not see, same Hebrew word, they did not see their father's nakedness. So Ham sees his father's nakedness. He goes outside and tells his two brothers. And his two brothers, hearing that Ham has seen his father's nakedness, take a cloak, walk backwards to cover his father's nakedness, and do not look so that they do not see their father's nakedness. Now, see in the very close contextual use in the second case must mean actually gazing upon. They didn't want to gaze upon their father's nakedness. They didn't want to personally witness their father's nakedness, and they covered it up. If this was a castration or some kind of gross sexual act, how is putting a blanket over him resolving the matter? And how is not looking at him somehow resolving, if you will, or doing the opposite of what Ham did. They grab the cloak and they cover his naked body. It seems to clearly be referring to the fact that Ham saw his father's, visibly saw, gazed upon his father's exposed naked body, and rather than covering his shame, Ham exposed his shame all the more to his brothers. Exposed it. We don't think much about the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. We don't think much about it. But friends, we're to honor our parents. Yeah, that means being obedient to them. Children, Ephesians 6.1 says you're to obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And honoring your father and mother also points to caring for them when they're old. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 15. Not just obeying them when you're young, but caring for them when they're old. Do you hear that, kids? Get a good job. You're going to take care of mom and dad someday. They change your diapers, and someday you'll change theirs. This is how life happens. You'll care for them. But honoring them, honoring your parents, also refers, also refers to holding them in high esteem, to upholding their reputation. A brother covers a matter for those whom he loves. Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So if you love people, you cover their offense. You don't go out and tell people about it. Ham's act 
is an act of dishonoring his father because he does not love him. So he wants to spread it out. Here's a question I have for you, children. Do you honor your parents? I don't mean, and especially teens, I do not mean do you just obey your parents. I mean, if your mom or dad commits a sin or an error, do you expose that to others and attempt to humiliate them, or do you cover it up and honor their names? Do you encourage your friends who are dishonoring their parents to continue exposing their parents, or do you encourage them to stop their mouths and repent? See, Matthew Henry said this, there is a mantle of love to be thrown over the faults of all. Besides this, there is a robe of reverence to be thrown over the faults of parents and other superiors. The command to honor parents is the foundation for honoring all authorities. And I fear that we often fail there too. Do you honor the authorities God has placed over you? Look, I don't agree with much that our current president does. That's no secret to anybody. But I despise when I hear conservatives, particularly Christians, mocking, mocking his clear mental decay. Mocking it. Look, his mental decay is sad. It's arguably disqualifying for office. But it is not an occasion for mocking. It's not an occasion for mocking. You're to honor the people God placed in office. That does not mean you can't vote to elect somebody else or stand against their bad ideas. That means you don't mock the person holding that office. Do you honor police officers? Not do you always agree with police officers. Do you honor them? How about our governor? It's a tough ask, but you're supposed to honor him. Or your city authorities, or your boss at work, or your husband. Any authorities God has placed in your life. Wives, do you tell your friends about your husband's sinful acts, or do you cover them? Every time your husband makes a mistake, do you go out yapping about it and complaining to people about him? Or do you protect his reputation? Husbands, I mean, you need to protect your wife's reputation as well. Love covers. I didn't ask, do you always agree with your authorities? I asked, do you honor them? Do you love them and cover their offenses, or do you expose their nakedness to others? We're commanded to honor them. We're commanded to honor them. And Ham's act is particularly wicked. Why? Because Ham is not merely dishonoring his father and mother. Yes, Ham was ungodly and unloving, but it's worse than that. Ham has seen his father live as a godly and righteous man, a preacher of righteousness, a prophet of God, for over a hundred years. And upon the first fall, the first failure of his father, the first time he sees sin in Noah in front of him, Ham pounces on the opportunity to revel in his father's fall. He rejoices in the iniquity of his father. 
Like Satan before him, Ham rejoices in seeing his father consume the fruit. Notice that it's fruit of the vine. Consume the fruit and become naked and ashamed. And friends, that is the nakedness we're speaking to here. Noah is naked and ashamed as Adam and Eve found themselves naked and ashamed after the fall. And Ham is acting like Satan here. He's doing so because he's the offspring of the serpent. Satan wanted to expose and shame and humiliate Adam and Eve, and he did. And in the same way, Ham was committed to exposing and humiliating and shaming his father, and he did. A godly man, a man who loves God and others, would cover his father's offense. An ungodly man rejoices in exposing it. Listen to Matthew Henry again. It is common for those who walk in false ways themselves to rejoice at the false steps which they sometimes see others make. But charity or love rejoices not in iniquity, nor can true penitents, people who are really repentant, that are sorry for their own sins, nor can they rejoice in the sins of others. If you know your own sin, you are not rejoicing in the sins of others. Noah was guilty of sin. He was naked, exposed, and ashamed. And Ham, a man whose father had only been good to him, rejoices in the opportunity to expose him further. Ham has an outspoken delight in his father's guilt and shame. But this is not how his brothers respond to Noah's fall. How do Shem and Japheth respond to their father's guilt and shame into his fallen sin? Look at verse 23 again. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Shem and Japheth chose to honor their father and so cover his offense. Think of how moving this scene really is. I don't know if you slow down and think about how moving the scene is. Here's their godly, reverent, faithful, obedient father who's now been exposed in sin right in front of them, who's laying there naked and exposed whom their brother is trying to mock and get them to engage in rejoicing in his fall. And Shem and Japheth take a blanket and put it on their shoulders and walk backward. And they go out of their way not only to cover their father's sins, but to never look upon it. They do not want to see their father at his lowest point. They refuse to look at their father's shame. Their only desire is to cover his offense. Love covers a multitude of sins. They do not want their father to suffer humiliation before them, nor before anyone. Nor before anyone. Friends, is that how you think of the falls and sins of your parents? What about your brothers and sisters in Christ? What about the authorities in other areas? How about your elders? I sin. Jason sins. Russell sins. John sins. 
Curtis sins. Jordan, you, you get in the point, okay? We all sin. Does that become an opportunity for you to gossip and rejoice in our sin and error? Or is that an opportunity for you to cover our sin? Now, let me give an important caveat that I haven't gotten to yet, but I have to. Because I know I'm going to get the email or the phone call or the text. So here it goes. I'm not saying you ought to cover sin that is a crime. Like abuse or rape or theft or murder or alcohol or drug abuse. I'm not saying that you ought to cover that. I'm also not saying that you ought to cover the sins of leaders that disqualifies them from office. I'm not saying you ought to cover it so that they can stay in office when they're really disqualified. I'm not suggesting that at all. In fact, 1 Timothy 5.19 has a lot to say about that. Right? What I'm saying is that the falls and foibles of others should not be an opportunity for you to rejoice and laugh and gossip. And that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Noah's going to go on to curse his son Ham and to bless his sons Shem and Japheth. And I am significantly over time. So we're going to read that and then I'm going to preach that next week. So let's look there. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. That's He's cursing the whole line of Ham, just so you know. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants or a slave of slaves, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. We'll look at those curses and blessings that Noah speaks to his sons next week. But I want you to be reminded that those who love cover sins. We do that because that's what the Lord has done to us. So just as a kind of alternative ending to my sermon, look at Isaiah 61 and look at verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Do you hear what he says there? Why is Isaiah rejoicing in the Lord? Why is his soul exulting in God? Because the Lord clothes us with the garments of salvation. Here's Isaiah speaking on behalf of his people. God clothes us with the garments of salvation. Why do we need that? Because we are naked and ashamed before the Lord. And we deserve condemnation. And the Lord clothes us with garments of salvation. He covers us. With a robe of righteousness. Hear that? That is what he does. He's speaking here contextually in Isaiah about the coming Christ who will do this. So that you see that fulfilled, look at Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And we'll pick that up, this notion of covering from the Lord one more time. 
Isaiah is pointing forward to the Christ who will come and accomplish this, with whom we'll be clothed. Paul is talking about the Christ who's already come and done it. Now look what he says in verse 5 of Romans 4. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. In other words, when you put aside your foolish, useless, sin-tainted works and cast yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ in faith, when that happens... Believes in him who what? Justifies the ungodly. You believe in the one who justifies the ungodly. Now how is it possible for God to declare you righteous when you are ungodly? It is because of what we just read in Romans 3, if we had read it, but Paul's audience had. In Romans 3, that Christ came and was a propitiation for our sins. He put himself in our place and bore our wrath for us on the cross. And his righteousness is then given to us. So that God is both just and the justifier, Romans 3.25, both just and 26, both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. So Christ comes. Isaiah's prophesying that. Paul's telling us he came and he stood in our place and he was condemned as the ungodly man in our place. And he closed us with his righteousness. So we believe in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, notice that, verse 5, his faith is counted as righteousness. Not because your faith is virtuous, but because the object of your faith, Christ, is righteous. Just as David, notice this, also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are Are what? Covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you're going to see this next week, but I already know what you're going to see next week. I've already written it. But you're going to see this clearly next week. The Lord covers the sins of the ungodly and the wicked. You'll even see the promise, even in the midst of this curse, you'll even see the promise that Ham's line will be redeemed. That God will cover their sins. And he covers your sins in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man whom God covers his sin. That's ours in Christ. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks For our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we recognize the many ways in which we sin, in which we have dishonored authorities, dishonored our parents, dishonored our spouse, in which we have, rather than through love, sought to cover an offense, we have, through our wicked and hateful hearts, delighted in the offense of others and sought to spread and gossip about that offense. We recognize what wicked sinners we are, people who are often not mindful enough about the grace that's been shown to us. Though you have shown us grace upon grace in Christ and forgiven our sins and and covered us with the righteousness of Christ, though you have done that, we still find our hearts bending toward rejoicing in the falls of others. Cause us to be humble 
about our own state and about the fact that the righteousness we have, any righteousness we have, is in Christ and by the Spirit. None of it is our doing. May we give thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.